ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. Tell me, have you ever seen a fire tornado before? A bloke working near Tennant Creek has just seen one and filmed it. And in a moment, he'll be sharing his story with you. Well, the fire up in the air would have been uh, probably a good 50 to 100 metres and it was jumping about 200 metres in front of itself. US President Joe Biden has just delivered a speech in a barn in Minnesota directed at American farmers. What is his pitch to US agriculture? You'll find out soon. You'll also today get to hear from the boss of the Association of Mining and Exploration Companies. What are his thoughts on the NT government's planned changes to mining regulation? And you'll also today on the Country Hour get to visit what is potentially the most remote orchard in Australia. Lots on today's program. Hope you can stick around. First up today, some breaking news about Santos's multi-billion dollar Barossa gas project in the Timor Sea. Work to lay down the pipeline was due to start today, but the federal court has stopped it. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. What's happened? Well, the federal court, Matt, has ordered an immediate 10-day injunction to stop work on Santos's underwater pipeline to its Barossa gas field. So a ship contracted by Santos, it actually left Darwin last night with the intention of starting work this morning, Mm -hmm. but Judge Natalie Charlesworth just a short time ago put a temporary halt to that. So this injunction, it was brought about by Tiwi Island traditional owner Simon Mankara, who raised fresh evidence with concerns that the laying of the pipeline, which is planned to come within just a few kilometres of Bathurst Island, would potentially impact his sea country and dreaming sites. So this evidence involves a new expert report commissioned for the Tiwi people, Mm -hmm. which claims the pipeline's proposed location would damage ancient burial sites, dreaming tracks and cultural artefacts. Santos has contested this with its own report, uh, but the Federal court judge today was sufficiently concerned that this evidence needed to be more closely examined by Santos and the offshore regulator, and so has, yes, ordered this immediate 10-day halt to any work happening on this Barossa pipeline. And as we go to air this afternoon, shares in Santos are down 2.65%. Has the company made any comments yet about this? I have contacted Santos for comment. Haven't heard back from them yet. Neither have we heard from the lawyers for uh, Simon Mankara, but hopefully we will hear from them soon. Uh, This is a pretty big deal for Santos's uh, project as a whole. It's already had some hurdles in front of it. Of mm. course, last year, um, the uh, the drilling side of the project was held up by a, another federal court um, stay there. And now today we've got the laying of this pipeline held up, which itself is a, is a really big project, Matt. It involves hundreds of workers. Um, here's a bit of what Santos CEO and Managing Director Kevin Gallagher said about the pipeline laying side of things in September at a conference in Darwin. 
The commencement of pipeweighing alone will be a huge economic boost for the territory this coming wet season. A three to four month offshore construction campaign, 500 Australian crew, about 300 expat crew and technical support personnel out of Europe. Some 340 hotel rooms will be required to support offshore vessel mobilisation. And 90 people will change out every week during pipe laying. That's 180 people every week travelling in and out of the territory on planes, staying in Darwin hotels, eating at the local restaurants, using cabs and Ubers. I have no doubt there will be more attempts from the anti-fossil fuel activists to stop Barossa. But this project is far too important for Darwin and the Territory for us to take a backward step. That is Kevin Gallagher. He's Santos's CEO and Managing Director. They were, they were comments he made in September about the size of the pipeline project. So as you heard there, it involves hundreds of people, a bunch of them flown in. There's hotel rooms they're staying at. There's a big boat outside of Darwin at the moment that was supposed to start work on this pipeline today. They have had to pull up for 10 days. You can go fishing. So people out in the boat, standing around waiting for instructions, and lots of people in Darwin now just awaiting instructions. Rightio, I'm sure there'll be updates throughout the afternoon on ABC News. Yes, and there'll be an article up on the ABC News uh, website shortly. Thanks, Dan. Hi, I'm Tim Burrow, and I represent the sand, rock and gravel extractors of the Northern Territory, and you're listening to The Country Hour. If you want to get in touch with The Country Hour, our text number is 0487 I wonder if we've got anyone listening this afternoon who has witnessed a fire tornado. I've just been shown an incredible video of one near Tennant Creek. The bloke who filmed it will be on the Country Hour in a moment. Uh, But sticking to resources news, let's today hear from Warren Pearce, who is the Chief Executive of the Association of Mining and Exploration Companies. And now Warren's been in Darwin this week and been spending a lot of time getting up to date on the NT's proposed new mining laws. These laws are set to be passed in Parliament later this year. I caught up with Warren earlier and asked for his understanding of the changes that are coming for the NT's mining sector. So quite significant changes, and what it really is is a, um, a redevelopment of the, st- of the Territory's environmental laws and making sure that we've got a contemporary system here in, uh, in the Northern Territory. In fact, one it's implemented will be a nation-leading system, taking a risk-based approach, which means the government can concentrate on those that have significant, uh, significant environmental outcomes and environmental um, uh, matters that have to be addressed, and those low-impact issues can move through more quickly. So it ensures the Territory will have um, the environmental protection uh, that, that the Territory needs, but also means there's enough certainty for industry that we know um, those issues can be progressed through approvals process uh, and we'll be able to uh, be comfortable that I'll appropriately measure the risk that uh, that comes with our projects. Can you give us a few more examples of what is changing? Um, so what they're going to do is introduce a tiered process. Um, so essentially um, they'll treat different tiers uh, differently. So you have a, a low impact, a medium, and then a higher high, high, high level of impact. Um, so obviously those with the higher will get a lot more, um, more significant assessment. They'll have a lot more 
more conditions attached to it, but those that are low impact and have low risk will be able to move forward relatively quickly. Um, so it's an important way of managing the resources of, of the state to focus on those things that are most important. And a lot of the regulatory work will fall into the hands of the Department of Environment instead of the Department of Industry, is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the number of staff and, and units will move over from the Department of Industry over to the Department of Environment and they'll carry on those responsibilities there. Um, so most of the information, the legislation is obviously in, in the Parliament um, and, uh, and indeed we'll see some more of the policy guidelines uh, dripped out over the, over the rest of the year. Um, but ultimately, how the system works will be down to uh, the Department of Environment and how they administer it. Uh, and so hopefully they'll, they'll do it right. So as the head of AMIC, how are you feeling about these changes? Um, a lot more comfortable than we were a while ago. So there's been you know, a lot of work over the last several years to actually get to this point. Um, and actually, they've done a decent job of listening to industry's concerns. Um, the Department of Environment's been very open, uh, very accessible to have those conversations with all stakeholders. Um, so we're getting to a point where we're a lot more comfortable with it. Um, ultimately, it comes down to how they, how they implement it on the ground. Um, but I think they've got the right approach, and that gives us some confidence they'll get it right. Expected it to be passed in Parliament later in the year. Yeah, but when are you expecting the, the rules to be in place? Uh, July next year. July next year, rightio. And there's also a, a legacy mines remediation bill yep. that looks to be passed. Yep. Uh, I guess for our audience, explain to us what that is and, and how you feel about it. Um, actually, we're quite fine with it. It's a good, um, it's a, it's a good initiative. They've wrapped up some Im- important um, matters in that. What it's about is dealing with those legacy issues. There's been mining and exploration all over our country. Uh, unfortunately, um, a long time ago, they haven't always done the right thing about cleaning up and rehabilitating the land. And so what it does is open up a pathway um, for new projects to be able to address those issues, for funds to be able to be collected from industry and, and help to rehab. Um, and it's just a way of trying to clean up some of the mess that's been left in the past. These days, you can't develop a mine without having a clear rehabilitation plan signed off so none of those issues legacies will ever occur again but we still got to deal with those that have happened from uh, from many many years ago have you ever seen a stat on how much money has been spent on cleaning up mines in the territory versus how much money has been spent on starting mines um no i haven't um but i still say the rehab rehab costs these days for new mines are very very expensive yeah. and so um you know it's a very very involved process you're going back to often returning the ground to something like it was before and natural features and, and restoring the environment um in a lot of cases you've now got projects looking to see if there's some way they can reuse the site for something that might have a community purpose or another purpose and of course often um, old mines are restarted and indeed uh, a lot of the new mines you see today are actually restarts or uh, reworks of existing mines. Um, So there's still minerals there and of course with critical minerals and different types of minerals being used in different technologies now, there's a lot of reasons to go back over old ground and see for what value might still be there. The Northern Territory Government often likes to describe the NT as this incredible place to do business, it's just boundless possible. But as the the head of a a national organisation, I mean, how true is that? I mean, how does the NT compare to, say, Queensland and WA? Look, um, looking backwards, it's been behind, but it's heading forward fast. So I think um, the truth is, when I look at Australia, I think the greatest opportunity really sits in Western Australia, Northern Territory and Queensland for two reasons. Credible prospectivity, particularly for critical minerals and minerals being used for those new renewable technologies, but also you've got three governments, um, and usually on a bipartisan level, and both parties are actually really committed to actually developing that industry and getting the economic benefits that can flow from it. Um, and I think this government's made a big effort with the royalty reform. That's a huge change, one that'll make a very big difference for the Territory uh, and very much um, sends a message to industry and our investors on the Territory serious about capturing that investment and putting it to work. What would you like to see the Territory do better? 
Um, we'd always think you can do better. Um, we, what we need, what we need to see them do right now, is land the environmental legislation and actually make that work. Um, and I think that's the really big test because that's the last piece that's sort of been a bit uncertain. The last four or five years has been a lot of reform in the Northern Territory, like an awful lot, and that's created a bit of uncertainty. People didn't, industry didn't know what necessarily was getting. Now we've got to that point where we're clear about what's going to happen. Now we've got to land it. That's what they've got to do. I think I saw one of the environment groups describe the the current regulations around mining as a dog's breakfast. Do you think that's fair? No, I don't. Um, I think the territory's had a better record than perhaps people realise. Um, that said, there's always improvements that can be made, and the new legislation, as I say, will be sort of nation-leading. Um, they picked up the best of what's happened in other states. They put on a risk-based approach. That's the right way to go about this thing, and I think most environmental groups would agree. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's Warren Pearce, who is the chief executive of the Association of Mining and Exploration Companies. So as mentioned, these changes to the Northern Territory's mining laws set to be passed later this year, set to come into effect in the middle of next year. It's got the backing of environmental groups and sounds like AMEC is happy with the changes as well. G'day, my name is Heather Smythe. I'm a sensory scientist and flavour specialist and my job is to make food more delicious. And you're listening to The Country Hour. Our text number is 0487991057. Jamie says, sadly ironic that you can talk about fire tornadoes and increasing fossil fuels in the same conversation without making the connection, reckons Jamie, 0487991057. You are tuned into The Country Hour. Over in WA, the state government has agreed to pay $180 million to thousands of Indigenous people who worked on cattle stations back in the day for little or for no pay. I'll tell you all the details after this tune by Troy Casadaly. It is 13 to 1 on a Thursday lunchtime. You are tuned into the Country Hour. The WA government will pay $180 million to settle a class action brought on behalf of thousands of Aboriginal people who had their wages withheld between 1936 and 1972. During this period, the WA state government was able to withhold up to 75% of an Aboriginal person's wage. Mirawong elder David Newry gave evidence during this stolen wages class action on behalf of members of his family who lived and worked on Ivanhoe and Newry cattle stations near the WANT border. He spoke to Alice Marshall and says for him this settlement is a complicated feeling of relief. Well, I mean, I can't get any more joyous about it, you know, and I think um, it's about time that they um, recognise something like this for the hard work that our people have put, you know, How? Well, including myself probably, but... Um, it's a worthwhile thing, you know, um, and and for to really point out that um, our people were the backbone of the cattle industry. Do you think that this is recognition now that, as you say, yeah, yeah, it's you know, it's all to do with the effort that our people have, have put and through hardship, you know, like um, our, our people were just basically treated like a um, slave. Has it been difficult for you to be part of this court case process? Well, it did. I mean, you know, the, the hardest part for me was talking about my family, how they've been treated, 
in in court, you know, where where one of my father's father brother got tied to a tree and got whipped for not hopping on a horse that morning because he was um, really sick in the stomach, you know. Mm. And and that kind of thing, I've, that sort of information was really um, hard for us to 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 tell other people about it, you know, especially in court. Um, glad that I've, I've I've taken part in some of this um, storytelling, you know, and and or information sharing, I should say, mm. about the hardship that our people have have taken, and you know. Some of the people that have waited since the time when the the, um, the lawyers came to, when they gave us that information about this um, class action thing, a few of them have passed away now, you know, and hoping that that be some of the recipient about this um, royalty that people are getting, you know. Like last year, one of my, my, my mother passed away, or a year before last, sorry. And she's not won't be able to get what she deserved, you know. Yeah. It's 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 good in one way, but then it's like it's um something that um feel a bit sad too in a way that where people were just about to get this thing but just couldn't make it to the end, you know. Um, glad in one way, but in the other way again, it's it's a sad thing for me that I know that my my people deserve this more. You know, my parents, actually, and my uncles and, yeah, well, all my family, the elderly family or the elderly one, um, you know, they were the one that should have been receiving a lot of these things. But it's, um, yeah, and for me, you know, um, like they're gone now and it's a really mournful feeling for me, really. Yes, so that they're not here with us now to hear this kind of news, you know. That is Mirawong elder David Neary speaking to Alice Marshall. A similar class action over stolen wages in the Northern Territory is still ongoing. In a statement to the Country Hour from Shine Lawyers, it says the parties are currently preparing to engage in a mediation and we are encouraged by the settlement reached in Western Australia and hope the Commonwealth shares the applicant's desire to resolve the Northern Territory matter without the need to proceed to a trial. You can read more about the WA government settlement up online if you search for ABC News. This week on Landline, what do you do when the fruit you've invested millions into growing is no longer profitable? I got the vibe that I hope the bloody hell it works or we're really in trouble. And meet the woman who sold $200 million worth of cattle properties in one year. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Some great territory stories on Landline this Sunday. Hope you can tune in. Now, the President of the United States, Joe Biden, has made his pitch to stop a mass exit of family farms in his country. Speaking from a barn today in Minnesota, the president promised more than $5 billion in funds for more competition in meat processing, programs for more job growth, and what he's termed climate-smart agriculture. It's a wide-ranging plan that is trying to address a bunch of problems that are faced by Australian farmers as well, as Warwick Long reports. 
I am beyond honored to welcome and introduce President Joe Biden. Standing next to a green tractor and in front of a large American flag at the farm of Brad Kluver, President Joe Biden laid out his plan to stop the exodus of farms in his country over the decades. Over the past 40 years or so, we've had a practice in America, economic practice called trickle-down economics, and it hit rural America especially hard. It hollowed out Main Street, telling farmers the only path to success was to get big or get out. Tax cuts for big corporations encouraged companies to grow bigger and bigger, move jobs and production overseas for cheaper labor, and undercut local small businesses. Meat-producing companies and the retail grocery chains consolidate, leaving farmers with ranchers with few choices about where to sell their products, reducing their bargaining power. You know, in part because of these conditions, over the past four decades, we lost over 400,000 farms in America. I came to office determined to change that. So that's the problem. What is the president's solution? Well, $5 billion in programs were announced to stop family farmers leaving agriculture and start getting younger people to return to middle America. The president says it's his type of economics that will deliver the best outcome for agriculture in America. And the money's there to help farmers and ranchers tackle climate crisis through climate smart agriculture and cover crops. Nutrient management. Prescribed grapes. Sorting carbon in the soil. Under our plan, farmers can diversify and earn additional income just selling into the local markets. Let me give you an example. When a farmer sells his commodities normally, you have to go through the grocery store and the farmers get about 18 cents for every, every dollar they have. Sometimes you get less than that. Some, some, but, but when a farmer sells locally, the farmers can get anything from 50 to 75 cents for their same exact product. We're also promoting competition in agricultural markets. Just four big corporations control more than half the market in beef, pork, and poultry. And because so few companies control so much of the market, if one of those processing plants goes offline, it can cause massive supply chain disruptions, slowing production, and cost farmers big. It happened to Brad. When processing plants shut down during the pandemic and he had to rely on social media to sell his hogs. Folks, look, there's something wrong when just 7% of the American farms get nearly 90%. 7% get 90% of the farm income. When I took office, I decided to invest a billion dollars through the American Rescue Plan and small and medium-sized independent meat processors to expand their capacity. Today, I'm proud to announce new funding that will go directly to rural communities. One billion dollars to fix aging critical rural infrastructure like electric water, like electricity, water, wastewater systems. We're investing millions in building new bio economy and with homegrown biofuels to be able to achieve it. And folks, this is just a start. Today I'm announcing we're investing nearly two billion 
dollars to help more farmers adopt practices that fight climate change and earn new income. We're investing $145 million for farmers and rural communities to install clean energy technologies like solar panels and lowering electric bills. An additional $274 million to expand rural high-speed internet even further. $2 billion to support communities in our rural partners network, which puts federal employees on the ground to help rural communities take advantage of the federal resources, let them know what they are and where they are. Minnesota was chosen because Joe Biden's first challenger for the Democratic nomination of the presidency is coming from Minnesota. So the president was at pains to push for rural American voters and support ahead of his push for re-election, which is to come next year. When rural America does well, when Indian country does well, we all do well. President of the United States, Joe Biden, ending that report by Warwick Long. G'day, I'm Angus Gidley-Baird. I'm the Senior Animal Proteins Analyst with Rabobank, and you're listening to The Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. In a moment, you'll get to visit what is potentially the most remote orchard in Australia. Favourite for the children is the mulberry trees. They will go there every day when they're staying to ripen and eat. And they're involved in the planting and the articulation for them. And you'll also hear Hayes Cook's account of coming across a fire tornado near Tennant Creek this week. It's all coming up on the Country Hour. And of course, our top story today is that the federal court has ordered an immediate 10-day stay on Santos's construction work for an underwater pipeline to its Barossa gas field. Santos has just put out a statement to the ASX. We'll be sharing that with you in a moment. Before all of this, let's head to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon. And, Beck, let's start in central Australia and in the Tenamai. Uh, just looking at the NAFI website, all of a sudden there's just a lot of, a lot of isolated dots on the map suggesting there's been a bit of dry lightning around in the last 24 hours or so. Yeah, that's right. Um, we've had quite a lot of uh, uh, thunderstorm activity across central and southern districts um, over the last 12 hours or so. Um, some of those were probably um, what we call dry thunderstorms um, with very little rain underneath, um, which it looks like there has been a few um, fires potentially sparked by that. Um and we also saw um, that as we had uh, um, wind gusts coming out of those thunderstorms, as that gust of wind moved over some of these fire sites, it also um, increased that fire activity. So, um, yeah, not not too good in terms of um, the, the response of the fires to this lightning activity. Mm. Um, it does look like um, from our satellite estimates, though, that there could have been a Reasonable drop of rainfall across the Tanami with um, a bit more active um, thunderstorm activity through there, um, potentially dropping a bit more rainfall. Um, the Territory is desperate for rain. What's on the horizon for the next few days? Uh, looks like fairly 
similar conditions over the next few days with um, thunderstorm activity potential um, across those um, southern and central districts continuing through much of the next week. Um, but again, not expecting a lot of rainfall associated with that. Um, probably where, where we've got troughs, then um, we might get a little bit more rainfall there, but um, probably not too much. Across the top end, not expecting too much at all. We've had some dry air moving into the middle levels of the atmosphere that's probably going to shut things down a bit um, over coming days. Uh, just a, a slight chance still um, for for western areas um, of the top end today, but, um, yeah, mainly just with the, the sea breeze coming in. Um, but, yeah, probably not expecting too much until potentially next week across the top end. Yeah. I'm just looking at the forecast for the Bark Hut on the Arnhem Highway. 40 degrees today, a top of 41 tomorrow, 40 on Saturday, 40 on Sunday. When's the next big cool change expected for the north? Oh, um, <laughs> I'd say I'd say we're not going to get one until until we get um, better shower and storm activity. So oh. I think we're past that period where we get those southeasterly um, surges coming through um, that might cool things down. And, and now we're just relying on um, potentially rainfall Rain. coming through. And that's not looking great. We had your long-range forecasting guru colleague Greg Browning on the program yesterday, and gee. He was the bearer of pretty rough news. It's not looking good, the uh, the three-month outlook. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that, that dry dry conditions um, and hot conditions looking likely to continue for the next little while. Anything else we need to be aware of today, Beck? Uh, I, think, I think that's the main thing covered for today. Yep. Have a lovely afternoon. Thanks, Matt. Rebecca Patrick there at the Weather Bureau. I'll just share with you a statement from Bushfires NT. This is what it posted on its Facebook page not too long ago. It says, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Good news is that some scattered rain of up to nine millimetres was recorded across central Australia last night. Even this small amount of rain has been helpful in containing some of the active fires. The bad news is significant dry lightning storms that passed across the lower part of the NT in the last 24 hours. The ugly are the multiple fires accredited to lightning strikes overnight. Nature is unpredictable. And certainly, if you head along to the NAFI website this afternoon, you can see in that southwest corner of the Northern Territory, quite a few isolated fires have started, and you can only assume that is down to those dry lightning strikes. Uh, on the text line this afternoon, 0487991057, a message here from Alex, who says, Matt, I recall a big media fuss was made about a fire tornado a few years ago. I think it was filmed around Curtin Springs Station. I remember that one too, Alex. I think the uh, photographer, the camera person was Chris Tangy. And I've got here that was back in 2012. More than a decade ago. It doesn't feel that long ago. But yes, that was quite the video, which uh, did the rounds in, in world media. It was amazing to see. And up next on the Country Hour, you're going to hear from Hayes Cook. He's just witnessed a similar phenomena at the back of Tannock Creek. 
Tales from the Tinny. Been making a mean goose jerky, goose nitties, goose kebab, goose lamb shanks with the legs. Yeah, it's amazing. It's the equivalent of a Fisher cast. Every ball that comes at him, he's hitting it to the boundary. Maxwell. It's, it's a Fisher cast. It was double hookups. Subscribe to the podcast. Where'd you go? How big were the fish you caught? How did you go about naming the sausages? Yeah, sort of settle on barra snags. Give us the crappest uh, other option. Buffages. Buffages. <laughs> or catch it from 5.30 Friday on ABC Radio Darwin. Now, as you know, Country Hour fans, workers on cattle stations across the Territory have been flat out in the last few weeks fighting fires. And during this time, there's been some extraordinary stories about how fast some of these fires have moved and the efforts involved in trying to fight them. Hayes Cook, who is contracting at Phillip Creek Station near Tennant Creek, uh, he was doing some work this week and all of a sudden came across a bushfire that got sucked up into a whirly-whirly. You should hear this thing, eh? It's going off. Sounds like a thunderstorm. Oh, no. Yeah, Hayes took this incredible video of a fire tornado or a fire devil, some people describe it as. Uh, He shared his story with Dan Fitzgerald. It started on the western side of the gas pipeline and it kind of just started from nothing really. Um, Nikita and myself were in a Toyota with a with a um, fire bug and we were just back burning slowly while the graders were on the eastern side trying to cover that side and we were just making sure that it didn't, the fire from the west didn't come back over and jump uh, in front of the graders trying to cover it on the eastern side. Um, and it, yeah, pretty well started from nothing and just started to started to get a bit of a wind up and we were just watching it and laying back burning in front of it so that the, the uh, head of the fire on the western side didn't hit too hard and, and want to jump. Uh, and then, yeah, the tornado pretty well started um, and we raced up the front out of the way probably about two, 200 metres. Yeah, obviously you can't really do much when it's coming at you that hard with the tornado. How high, and, did the, um, how high did the fire go up in the air? Well, the fire up in the air would have been uh, probably a good 50 to 100 metres and it was jumping about 200 metres in front of itself. So there must have been a fair wind to uh, move the fire that quickly and also whip up this, as you said, fire tornado. Yeah, definitely, yep. It was, yeah, it was definitely something... I've never really seen before and I've spoken to a few other people about it and, yeah, it's very rare for it to happen that big, yeah. Did you feel safe? Uh, yeah, the distance we had between it, we we felt safe. We were in the middle of the road. Um, but, yeah, it was still it was still pretty heart-pounding to watch. How long did it last for? I probably went for um, from start to finish... I'd say about five minutes. Kind of pretty well come to standstill after about five minutes, yeah. And the rest of the fire, you managed to get that all under control? Yeah, yep. Um, we put in a pretty big effort again um, to get it back under control. And, yeah, same thing. Did another day and a night to, um, to get it contained and under control. I know Phillip Creek's been threatened by fire on a number of occasions over the last month or two. How's everyone at the property feeling? Yeah, we had a um, we had a day off um, after it was all pretty well settled down, and it was 
yeah, the best thing that ever could happen, really. <laughs> a few tired bodies. Yeah, we started. A few of us started to um, pretty well hallucinate with the with the efforts we were putting in. We're driving home to have our couple of hours rest, and yeah, a few of us were seeing things on the road that weren't there. Wow. Well, I hope you get some rest now. Thanks for having a chat with the Country Hour. No, right, thank you. Yeah, big thanks to Hayes Cook. He's a contract musterer with Silver Silver Bridal Contracting. Sharing his story there with Dan Fitzgerald. At 16 past one, you are tuned into the Country Hour. We started today's program with the breaking news that Santos has been ordered to stop construction on its gas pipeline to the Barossa Field in the Timor Sea. Santos has just put out a statement regarding the federal court's ruling today. Dan Fitzgerald joins me in the studio again. He's got the statement in his hands, but before you get to that, Dan, just remind us, the court action today, what happened? Yeah, so this uh, injunction, it was brought about by a Tiwi Island traditional owner, Simon Mankara, who raised fresh evidence which claims that Santos's pipeline could damage ancient burial sites, which are now underwater off the Tiwi coast, as well as dreaming tracks and cultural artefacts. And the court is going to consider that evidence now after Mm -hmm. this 10-day halt. Uh, Santos has responded to this. It's just put out a statement saying that an independent expert anthropologist concluded there were no such underwater cultural heritage places following interviews with around 170 Tiwi people and extensive archaeological and anthropological literature and studies. These studies included consideration of independent expert archaeological and geological assessment of the pipeline route. Santos goes on to say that it respects the cultural heritage of the Tiwi people, and while we appreciate there are a range of views, Santos has complied in full with the requirements of the regulator NOPSEMA. Now, Matt, it should be noted that the Tiwi Land Council dismissed Santos-commissioned anthropological report it mentioned there. Uh, The Tiwi Land Council's Chief Executive, uh, Robert Graham, said the report was not an adequate authority to inform Nopsema, Santos or other stakeholders in the relevant Tiwi cultural background. Um, As far as what this means for the project, um, Santos says it will assess any impact on the schedule and the cost of Barossa if the injunction is extended beyond the November 13th and it will update the market accordingly. Mm-hmm. And Santos says it will continue def- to defend the proceedings at the next court date. Okay, thank you for keeping us up to date, Dan. On the text line, Alan Humpty Doo says, Matt, I'd expand the business here, but dealing with the non-stop anti-everything people is just too much in the Northern Territory. Clowns to the left of us and jokers to the right, reckons Al, this afternoon on 0487 1057. G'day, I'm Ben Coots, Catherine Northern Territory, flat out loading trucks and supplying the rural industry across the north. We keep the ABC on at work all day so that our customers and our staff can keep up with all the news and latest happenings. And you're listening to The Country Hour. Well, I did read out Al's text, so I'll read this one out as well. Uh, The text line says, Al's worried about clowns. Well, most Territorians are worried about cowboy businesses that leave legacy mines that pollute our water and pollute our air. 0487991057 is our text number at the Country Hour. If you head along to our website this afternoon, there's a story up there 
with the headline, NT land managers demand action on deliberately lit fires. And this is a collection of stories that we've heard on the Country Hour from Indigenous rangers, cattle producers, firefighters, all these groups that are just so frustrated by some of these fires that have been deliberately lit. We had the new Ag Minister on the Country Hour yesterday, Nicole Menison, and asked what her government is doing to make sure these deliberately lit fires in remote areas are getting investigated. And this is what she told us. Police will go in uh, and they will investigate arson. But I did have a request to go in and ask them to prioritise it a bit more. Uh, But, you know, I've been in the police station before and been shown video footage and investigations work where they've nailed some of these people. And I tell you what, you know, it is an absolutely disgraceful, despicable act to go and intentionally set a fire alight to create chaos. They're absolute scumbags and they need to be dealt with. That was on the program yesterday. You can find that story via the NT Country Hour website. Now, finally today, let's head to what is potentially the most remote orchard in Australia. Our reporter, Victoria Ellis, is in the APY lands this afternoon and she's at the Kenmore Park School, which is home to a community orchard that's growing a range of fruits like apricots, mandarins and mulberries. And she caught up with the school principal, Charlie Klein. Yeah, we've got a small orchard which has a variety of stone fruit and citrus. Um, we've, that's been in for two years now. Um, Favourite for the children is the mulberry trees. They will go there every day when they're starting to ripen and eat. And they're involved in the planting and the articulation for them and then maintaining that area. And they also um, grow vegetables, seasonal vegetables. So they'll do things like grow beetroot and then pickle that and we'll use that for the school lunches. Right now we're growing, the cabbages are coming on. Um, there's some broccoli, onions, celery, tomatoes are coming on for the summer. Not many tomatoes left though, are they? The kids loved those. <laughs> well, the little ones, they do tend to pick them green. But um, it's part of the program where the kids each week do something that's practical and outside. And around that um, sort of veggie garden, as we see traditionally in most of the towns of Australia, um, we also have um, native um, bushes that we use for making bush medicine. So it's a mixture of a traditional garden or traditional plants, if you like, the local plants, and imported veggies and things. But it's um, a part of the week where kids are involved in doing something practical, and it's uh, related to the science program we do. And um, We do a thing called two-way science, where children learn on country with their families, they're actively empowered to be involved in their children's learning. And we use that learning on country then to actively teach further science in whatever area, be it um, in regard to animals or, or vegetation or weather. And, uh, and that fills the science program. And we have children who are actually getting A's benchmark nationally, which is quite wonderful. And uh, then we integrate that science across the curriculum. And there's a lot of involvement from the community. They come into the school and they also take the kids out of school and help with the education and the teaching. Can you tell me how many staff you've got working from the community and what sort of things that they actually do and how that involvement works? Yeah, we have five Anil Aboriginal people in our school, um, an Anil coordinator, and that person, Lois, and I lead the school together in a collaborative manner. And then we have four that work in the classrooms. Um, Hazel, she leads the playgroup and the junior kids. Um, then we have um, two, <clears throat> two um, women who work in our lower class and then Aaron who works in the upper class. And they, they support 
the teachers as a teaching team in teaching the regular curriculum that we have English, maths, um, has, uh, music, drama. But they specifically they lead the teaching of Pittendada. So we do that on a daily basis. Um, and they lead the teaching of that and they lead two way science. So they're actually empowered to to lead and teach their kids. And we can see that by having a bilingual approach, two-way approach in our school, learning both languages complements each other. And uh, we can see vast improvement, especially this year. We've been working on it for a few years and kids are really, really sort of settling in now and understanding and, and getting great results. But it's that uh, teaching the whole curriculum, but certainly animal empowered in their children's education and making decisions about the school. We collaborate and it, it makes it a happy, strong place. And what's next for the school community? What will you be growing next or planting next or working on to help encourage that side of the learning? Well, we're hoping that um, over the Christmas break, there'll be lots of pumpkins and lots of um, watermelons. Um, they're the main things we're looking forward to, but also the tomatoes and things. We have a, we have a few chooks. So at school, we'll, we're going out bush today and we'll be having um, curried egg sandwiches and they'll be eggs from the school. So the um, main thrust we have, we have a, a goal that in 10 years we'll have children going to further education. In our, we've got a community education agreement we work, we work with. And so we're, we're hoping that we'll have children will extend their learning past, past the school here and uh, into university or further education of some form. Charlie Klein, thank you so much. It's been a joy coming out here and learning all about the school. Thank you. Yeah, massive thanks to Charlie Klein. He's the school principal there at the Kenmore Park School in the APY lands. Hey, just quickly, there's a biosecurity simulation exercise happening in the Northern Territory this afternoon on tomorrow's Country Hour. We'll endeavour to find out more about it and find out how it went. Keep it rural. Keep it rural.